This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I'm Alex Higley. And I'm Lindsay Hunter. And, and I'm, I'm a writer, writer but... Welcome to I'm a Writer, but today we have Dr. Suzanne Cope, who is a narrative journalist and food studies scholar with a focus on food as a tool for social and political change. In addition to her book, Power Hungry, she has written about food, activism, and culture for the New York Times, The Atlantic, CNN, BBC, The Washington Post, among others. She also actively publishes, guest lectures, and presents in academic forums and teaches at New York University. Welcome, Suzanne. Welcome. Thank you. Excited to be here. This is so great. And thank you for joining us from your vacation. No problem. (laughs) No, writers are always working, right? So that's right. That's so true. (laughs) No such thing as a vacation. You're right. What do you want to read to us? I I think I'm going to mix it up and I'm going to read from about um, two, not quite two thirds of the way through the book, but it's a good periodic moment. Sunday, September 20th, 1964, was Jacqueline's ninth birthday, and her mama threw her a birthday party. They had cake, perhaps opened presents, and played games. For one evening, Aline wanted Jacqueline to forget the terror that gripped her town each night. There was a field next to their house from which two men were supposed to guard my house, Mrs. Quinn later said, adding, they said they were there. Sunday night was their night. Jacqueline would later wonder if there had been a snitch among the network of guards. Once the last guest had left, perhaps Aline helped five-year-old Anthony change into his pajamas, and then she tucked Jacqueline into bed with a new toy. Johnny Lou Wilcher, a good friend of Mama Quinn's older daughter, Carolyn, was a frequent babysitter and settled in the sitting room in the back of the house so Aline could attend a movement meeting in Jackson an hour's drive away. Deviating from her usual routine, she left the house without closing the front curtains or turning off the dining room lights. Visible reminders of the evening's festivities, the half-eaten cake, perhaps decorations taped to the wall or clouds of wrapping paper were illuminated, visible from the street. The neighborhood was quiet and Mama Quinn's children were sleeping when an unfamiliar car raced down the street. There was a brief moment of quiet followed by screeching tires as the car sped off and then an explosion that shook houses for blocks. After months of bombings and burnings, the target was Mama Quinn. 14 sticks of dynamite were thrown towards her front door and tore through the front of her modest ranch house. The front door and walls of the rooms where her children were asleep were blown to pieces and the ceiling collapsed. Neighbors heard and felt the boom, which had become all too familiar to black residents over the previous few months. Windows shattered in nearby homes and the people inside them held their breath waiting for more. The wreckage smoldered, the smoke and dust 
lingering, sickening, sweet odor of nitroglycerin wafted over the cake that the explosion had plastered on the remaining walls and ceilings. The bomb had exploded the room around Anthony. Pieces of the ceiling trapped him in his bed, pinning him in his place in a cloud of dust and smoke. Neighbors came running, and miraculously, Anthony was freed in minutes with little more than bruises. Jacqueline remembers a neighbor picking her up out of the wreckage and carrying her to his house. She waited there with her brother, dust still clinging in her hair, until her mother could be summoned and race home. The violence in Macomb was not going unnoticed beyond the town, despite law enforcement's seeming lack of will to stop it. J. Oliver Emmerich, the editor of the local newspaper, the Macomb Enterprise Journal, had echoed propaganda talking points and allowed local white leaders to dictate the paper's point of view for plenty of years. However, 1964 seemed to mark a change towards more open support of the COFO activists. He even called out the FBI for falsely calling the NAACP, quote, the best communist infiltrated organization in America. Since then, his views slowly had become even more outspoken in defense of the movement, and he continued to highlight the violence against local Black citizens and law enforcement's indifference towards these crimes. Due in part to the growing awareness, thanks to this reporting, the terrorism in Macomb started to gain the attention of a larger audience. That summer, Emmerich called Macomb, quote, the bombing capital of the world. And after reading the horrific accounts of months of unfettered terrorism, few disputed that dubious claim. He would later be beaten and have flaming crosses lit on his lawn for his growing support of the movement. But his graphic stories about the crimes committed against the local Black community members and activists, published in a newspaper that wasn't only for a Black audience, began to grab the attention of larger news outlets beyond his corner of the state. Could it be true there were so many bombings and beatings in this small city and its surrounding area? Urban and coastal journalists and readers didn't understand the willful complicity of the local law enforcement. It was through his amplification of an important story that others in the state had long sought to quelch that made others pay attention. In the wake of this coverage, Time Magazine described Macomb as, quote, the toughest anti-civil rights community in the toughest anti-civil rights area and the toughest anti-civil rights state in the union. The racial inequity they observed took on a very different pallor in the bigger northern cities. The irony was not lost on local citizens that it took the murder of two white men for people to start paying attention to the unfettered white supremacist terrorism in Mississippi. But citizens were hopeful this increased scrutiny and even the mounting aggression meant that change was finally on the horizon. And this was a reason people like Allen Quinn didn't back down. The typical reaction to a bombing was to go inside, said local uh, SNCC worker and current Harvard professor Marshall Gantz years later. But that night, after phones rang around Macomb, spreading the word that yet another bombing had occurred and that it was Mama Quinn's house with her children inside, something changed. It was a big deal, he said, because there had been bombings in Macomb. It was just one after another after another. But when they bombed her place, everybody came outside. Wow. It was like you could see the fear shift into anger. You could just see, Professor Gann says. It was like folks said, no, enough of this shit. Soon neighbors came to stand in front of their home, some with hunting rifles visible by their sides. Local people from nearby neighborhoods showed up as well. There was urgency, a sense that patience for change had finally worn threadbare. No one was going to protect them. Even children were targeted, so they had to protect themselves. Many who were in the local movement slept with guns next to, their, next to their beds already, or had someone keeping watch for a slow-moving car waiting to throw a Molotov cocktail or plant dynamite or send a spray of bullets. And when they discovered it was a house with young children, the house of a woman who so, gave so generously to the community and the movement, they took to the streets. By the end of the night, dozens of Black community members and activists were arrested, most charged with exaggerated or bogus crimes like criminal syndicalism, a new state law that prohibited action by, quote, subversive groups. One could only imagine the fear and anger Mama Quinn felt as she sped the hour back from Jackson, Mississippi, towards her bombed home and terrorized children. 
When she made it back to her Brooklyn neighborhood, of course she first went to find her children traumatized, but physically okay, safe in the arms of her community. Perhaps it was only then she fully took in the scene around her home. There were local men legally armed standing together in defiance. There were other groups of younger kids allegedly throwing bottles or rocks at police car whose presence was menacing and not comfortable. It was clear they weren't investigating this bombing nor making any pretense of finding the perpetrators. Rather, their presence seemed to be egging locals into any sort of response that would give the officer reason to arrest them, which they were doing in large numbers. It was tense, Jacqueline Quinn remembers. A lot of people had congregated outside her house after the dust had settled. It seemed like everybody in the community was out in front of her house. It could have turned ugly, you know, but it didn't. This and great thanks to her mother's leadership. After seeing her children, Mama Quinn was summoned by law enforcement. They wanted her to defuse the protests. That night, my house was bombed. There could have been a riot, Mrs. Quinn said decades later. But the police, they asked me to make the people go home. Once again, she was asked to make concessions to appease the white power structure. Malcolm X, while considered too radical by many local and even student activists, had forewarned of that bloody summer in a speech a few months before in April. This year of 1964, he said, quote, will be America's hottest year, her hottest year yet, a year of much racial violence and much racial bloodshed. This had proven to be true thus far. He continued, the new generation of black people have grown up in this country during recent years are already forming the opinion, and it's, just a, and it's a just opinion, that if there is to be bleeding, it should be reciprocal, bleeding on both sides. Mama Quinn was asked to stop a spontaneous protest that would have perhaps proven Malcolm X's point. They had been beaten, arrested, bombed, intimidated, and oppressed for too long, and local people needed to create change. She held them back that day, but she couldn't and wouldn't forever. The next day, Aline Quinn packed her bag. A representative from COFO had called, and with money donated by the National Council of Churches, she, Ora Bryant, and Maddie Dillon, all women whose homes had been bombed that summer, were flying to Washington, D.C. to talk to President Johnson and the national press. They want to tell the president that the local people of Mississippi were done waiting. Thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. I, I kept like flinging the book down and yelling to my husband, you know, they bombed these people. They didn't care that there were kids in the house and the, they, were, they were changing laws to prevent them from, you know, and, and the thing that we kept, that kept blowing our minds is that this is in many, many people's lifetimes. These people yes. are still alive, you know, they're, um, um, the oppressors and the oppressed are still alive. And, um, it's, it's insane. It's, it's truly baffling and enraging. Um, and, and then you get to the part in the book where you mention what happened with Stacey Abrams and you realize, mm-hmm. holy shit, yeah. <laughs> like, it's, it's still happening. It's still happening. It is still absolutely happening. They're mm-hmm. getting away with it. Um, so yeah, I, I found myself feeling very strong, strong feelings as I, as I read this book. Oh, well, good. I'm glad <laughs> I, yeah. I did my job there. You know, I definitely, there were so many moments where, you know, I'm, I'm writing and I'm hearing the news and I'm just thinking of, of things echo so closely. It's like, how, mm-hmm. how is this not, you know, how has this not been fixed or changed or, you know, how, how are we still fighting the same fight? It was really, um, yeah, confounding, but it made me feel at the time too, that, okay, this is a needed book. You think, are these stories still relevant? Do people care? Um, you know, will people see the, you know, the, the connection, but it, it was all too obvious at, at many points in the writing that, you know, definitely this is a history that needs to be amplified and that these are still issues that we're talking about today, for sure. 
Was this already an area of expertise for you, Suzanne, prior to writing the book, or did you ha- you have a, you have a history of writing, you know, a lot of w- within you know the food world and all, all that? But did you have did you have like a depth of knowledge on this topic prior to writing the book, or is it something that you were very interested in and thought, you know what, I bet with a lot of research, I could I could put something together. Yeah, it's more, it was definitely more the latter. Um, and it's interesting because of, you know, I went into this and um, thinking, all right, it's, it is about food. And of course it's about so much more than food, like so mm. many other, you know, shorter things that I had written. And then um, you realize, oh, you have to dig into this part of the story or you have to, you know, there were, I know this, this part that I just read was, you know, a little ways into the book. So there's stories there that um, might not have make total sense um, unless you read what comes before it, but uh, there's, you know, who, who were the, the, what was the FBI doing? And I mentioned, you know, two white activists who had been killed. What's the story there? So there was so many stories that I had had to dig in deeper for me to understand it appropriately, but also to give this larger context. And so there were times when I just wanted to, to tell these larger historical stories that weren't directly about food. And, um, and I guess that was part of the interesting challenge was to have it keep coming back to my, my central argument about food as a tool for um, political and social change. And so I definitely became a uh, I became an, an expert in this, you know, small slice of history, but I had heard this advice and I'm going to totally forget who told me or where I read it, but um, that you, you know, it was interesting as I gave myself this crash course in uh, these different areas of history, where when you start to, you know, read the same you know, stories, but from these different perspectives and, and you realize you've read this and you understand it, it's almost like becoming fluent in a moment of history. Um, and then you're like, okay, I, I've got this. I have this full picture. And, you know, there's always, there's always stories and, and aspects that I, I don't know that well, but, um, but yeah, it was, it was an interesting process becoming, yeah, I've never called it that before actually. So thank you for that idea of becoming fluent in this, in this moment. Mm. I, am I wrong? Did you, um, were you still researching it right when the pandemic struck? I know that there, there's a moment in the in the intro where you meet Mrs. Patsy Ruth Butler. Is that her name? Yeah. Um, and and you 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 promised to come back and talk to her, but then you can't. Yes. Um, so so, what was your aim like before the pandemic? Mm-hmm. Where you know where were you starting, or where you know what were you in the middle of, and then and then what. Uh, what did the pandemic change for you and what did it change about the book? Yeah. Yeah. I've given this a lot of thought because I've talked about it a little bit with writer friends and with, um, at some events. And then I wrote about, I wrote actually wrote an article about it for lit hub. Um, and so I, you know, for those who don't know about, um, I know you have a lot of fiction writers, uh, who talk to you in some nonfiction, of course. Um, but you don't need to have written the whole book to sell it, but you do need to have a very detailed, um, and, and clearly defined goal, uh, in a proposal. So the proposal could be, you know, almost one third of the length of the book. And so I had a, I had a very detailed proposal and, um, and so I was kind of waiting to make sure, Hey, the editor wants this, and this is the format that they wanted in to begin researching. And so that really didn't happen until the very end of 2019. Wow. And then I'm a teacher, I teach college. And so I had, I, you know, I was able to plan and say, okay, I have January to, to make this first round of um, visits so I could really dig in. So I had a lot of background info. I had talked to people on the phone and emailed with people and done different kinds of research. 
And so I was going to do these couple of trips and, um, in January. And so I did, I took one trip to see Cleo Silvers, a black Panther party leader, um, in Memphis. And that was a real leap of faith <laughs> because here's this person I'd never really, you know, we talked on the phone, but not really in depth. And I was like, can I, can I come to Memphis? Can we hang out for a couple of days? Is this going to work? And, um, and so I did, I stayed at a hotel, but we, you know, we were together for days in a row, cooked together and we went grocery shopping and she had some, you know, young local activists over and her husband's there. And we just had a really great time. And it was, you know, that was so essential to getting to know her and, um, having this prolonged time doing things together and around food. And so that was really great. And I, I do believe that, um, you know, we struck up a very, you know, real friendship with that. And then a couple of weeks later, I went to, um, I went to Macomb and so you fly, you can fly in and out of, uh, of New Orleans. It's not that far North of New Orleans. And so we did that. And, um, and so I was able to meet some people in Macomb and see Macomb. And that was so essential. And meeting Patsy Ruth Butler, um, uh, was, was kismet. It was, I just, you know, I met her son and he said, come talk to my mother. And I got to see this amazing black history museum in town. And I went to local archives and then um, one amazing interview. Um, it was at the, the local black history museum. And I came across this name that I, um, I had seen his name, but I, I didn't have that full picture because it was the beginning of my research. And it was of um, Curtis Hayes Muhammad. He changed his name later. And um, he lived in New Orleans. And so I, I was going back through New Orleans. So I, I contacted him, he got right back to me and he met with me and it was a really powerful interview. And he knew Mama Quinn in a, in a very you know, interesting way. He would be her driver on, um, on, on liquor runs because Mississippi was a, um, was a dry state. And I mean, it was complicated. The, I mean, it was dry, but there were many ways to get alcohol, but still you kind of had to do it in this extra legal way. And so he would go on these liquor runs with her. And, um, and he just told me these amazing stories about her. And I, to me, he was the one who really made her come alive. Mm -hmm. um, and I always had this vision of going back and I um, was working on getting a grant that I could go back and, and be able to record uh, these interviews, but record them in higher quality and, and, and then preserve them. And I was working on, on getting a, um, an archive that would keep them. And, um, the pandemic happened, of course. And so I wasn't mm -hmm. able to do that. And I did, of course, interview many more people, but it was over, it was, it was over the internet. It just, you know, had a different feel to it. Um, but sadly, uh, regards to um, Curtis Muhammad is that um, I just found out he died last month and oh, no. it was awful. And it made me just think about, you know, how many stories are we on the verge of losing? And we need to actively make sure that these stories are preserved. Um, yeah, it's just, you know, to think of, he'd done so many things in his life and he was really a, a, a pivotal person in, in understanding this story and how these two stories, these parallel stories come together. And I'm just, um, yeah, I'm a little heartbroken that I wasn't able to talk to him again and, and just help, you know, share whatever it is that he might have wanted help sharing. I feel like that urgency is something that is so essential to the best nonfiction because kind of regardless what you're writing about, and, and whether or not, if it's true in the strictest sense, having that kind of urgency to talk to the people that matter, whoever they may be, I feel like can be such a driving force to getting some of the best stuff, regardless of whether or not it actually is the best stuff. I just feel like having that attitude about going after the stories that you need to, to supplement your work is, 
is so essential to some of the best nonfiction, whether or not it's true in the, in the strictest sense. Exactly. And when you, you know, when part of your question was how did it, you know, the pandemic changed that kind of the thrust of the book. And in some ways it's like, I'll never know because it's these stories. You never know what people are going to tell you. If you did know, would you need to talk to them? Right. <laughs> so, exactly. Uh, it, you know, the stories that I, people did tell in the context that we were speaking, which was, you know, it wasn't in person, but was still from a place of, um, you know, I wonder sometimes were people more open to speaking on the phone because mm-hmm. we've been in this Zooming phone world, mm-hmm. um, especially because most of the people I interviewed were probably in their 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, were, were some of the things that were happening in the world, like, you know, Black Lives Matter protests, did that make... Um, you know, that was a topic of conversations at time. And even though I only explicitly mentioned a little bit in the very last chapter, I, I think it did color our conversations. And of course it made, you know, it, it colored it in ways that maybe just didn't make it you know, explicitly on the page. But, um, you know, so I think, wow, we really, yeah. How can I know what the conversations would have been like if we were in person? But I'm so glad that I think my relationship with Cleo was necessary to meet her in person. And I'm so happy that I was able to do that and to see Macomb and um, I met, Jacqueline Quinn in person during that trip. And then we, we later talked on the phone. And I think it was so essential to, um, to meet some people in, in person. And, um, but, you know, I, I think about how relatively quickly I wrote this book. It was written pretty much in a little, about a year and a half over the pandemic. And wow. um, yeah, but with, you know, I'd done a lot of background research, but really the of writing course. of it. And I think, um, yeah, I don't know if, if I had taken longer, I, you know, I thought, do I want to wait until I can travel again? But I'm like, you know what, this is the story. I already had to cut 10,000 words. I'm like, you know, this is the story that, that came out of this research. And I always think as the academic in me, and I tell my students, I'm like, you're just starting the conversation. You're not, you're never going to be able to say everything you want to say, whether it's a five page paper or a 500 page paper. So you're telling, you know, what you're framing your story in this in, in whatever space you have. And then you're just hoping that the next person takes that conversation and adds to it. So, um, you know, that's very much how I have come to think of it, you know, in, in, as far as the context of, of the research and how it, how it came together. And of course the writing and how it came together. Mm-hmm. Was there anything as you went along in terms of your research or writing or um, that, that surprised you or shocked you or, or felt scary as you were writing this, you know, this huge story? I mean, so many things surprised me. And then I, you know, in some ways I, I felt ashamed that we don't know these stories more widely. Um, you know, just the extent of, of how, you know, these activists were, were, were beaten, were arrested, were killed, were intimidated, um, you know, and, and the fact that this was allowed to happen for so long and it's still happening. So that was definitely, um, you know, upsetting that this is not a history that's more widely told. And um, so much about the Black Panther Party too, where, where we, it's, it's shocking how much of what we think we know, even people who think they have done a pretty good job of researching and thinking about the Black Panther Party more, um, you know, from an unbiased perspective, it's so affected by the propaganda, um, both from what the FBI put out there, but that also influenced media, but also, of course, media bias at the time, mostly white males doing this uh, reporting. And just to think, wow, you know, we, it's so hard to, to tease apart this, this long-standing propaganda from um, what, the, what the truth is. So that, that was very surprising. And, and even though I think all the time about how to assess media from, you know, an unbiased perspective, but it's just, it's, it's almost impossible to completely remove 
these layers of bias. But um, an exciting thing that happened was the way that these stories ended up coming together in this very, like very specific way. I knew and my wonderful agent and editor knew that um, that they would be linked thematically. And um, the fact that there were actual characters, people who were in both places uh, made it so powerful. And it was just reminded me and, and everyone who believed in this project that, um, that yeah, it was right to put these stories together. And maybe it was a little bit of a risk to make sure I could pull off showing how they were linked, but um, they absolutely are linked. And it, I thought it was really fascinating to see um, yeah, to see those moments. And, and one of them was from um, Curtis Hayes Muhammad. And he told me, and this was early in the research, as I noted, that um, he was uh, he was in Mississippi. He was working with Eileen Quinn. He was a member um, of active, activist groups in like the mid, um, early mid 1960s. And then a year or two later, he was called up by the Black Panthers and asked to go out there and give workshop on, um, on community organizing. Mm-hmm. And that's directly what um, preceded and and what helped create the Free Breakfast for Children program. So the fact that that activism directly impacted um, that other work was just really amazing to me. Mm -hmm. And he said, I don't want to say that I I didn't tell him to do it. I just gave him the tools to to find out on their own what the people needed. And I thought that was amazing. That was one of the interesting things about reading the book, Suzanne, is that the thing I was constantly confronted with was Jesus what else don't I know (laughs) right exactly what what else do I not know about this period of history this stretch of activism that obviously has tendrils into today deeply um and it seems like the answer is a whole hell of a lot It, it seems like there could be a number of books written on very specific aspects of activism of of this period um with a similar kind of you know focus in different arenas that have yet to come out absolutely yeah i hope i'm only starting the conversation but that also it gave me fear (laughs) when i was researching Mm. it because i'm coming from this of this, uh, I, I have an MFA in creative nonfiction and then um, I got my PhD and that really taught me a lot of my, um, you know, deep researching skills and also to, you know, how to assess my sources and make sure I'm really looking at them fully. And I, um, you know, wanted to bring in some, you know, academic perspective in here without bogging it down with that. And, um, but also knowing once you have a sense of everything you don't know, then you're like, what else don't I know? Mm-hmm. And this was also part of the pandemic thing. And I think in some ways, maybe the pan- pandemic limitations helped me put that little box around the story a little bit better because mm-hmm. if they, if I could have gone to all the pertinent archives and interviewed all the people and gone to all the places, like would this story, it, when, when could I have decided that I was telling enough, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I kind of had to, um, you know, I was limited uh, in some ways about like the places I could travel. And so I had to, um, I had to rein it in a little bit, but the, I mean, the story needed to be, you, you can't tell all the stories, as you noted, it's books and books worth. Um, and so, yeah, I really was so conscious about wanting to give as full and as true and as accurate of a sense of this, um, you know, give the appropriate context, but then, um, 
you know, one thing that made me feel really great is some of the first, you know, kind of media feedback that I received was that it was well-researched. And I was like, okay, good. Some, at least some people think that I, <laughs> um, I've given the appropriate context that it, it, it is authoritative in at least what it's, what it's striving to do. So uh, I felt good that I accomplished that because it was definitely a goal of mine. Is the research something that you, you enjoy? Is it something that, I mean, obviously it's a subject that you're interested in, but is it something that is really scratching an itch for you or is, is, you know, sitting down at the computer and the actual sentence making the part that you kind of are more drawn to? I don't know. That's a good question. Um, you know, especially as I'm embarking on my next project and I think about um, where do you start and, you know, what parts, you know, when you have to, when you have a choice of where to start and what to do next, when you're at the very beginning, then it kind of gives you a sense of what you're most interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love the personal stories. Um, and, you know, one thing too, is that this, this next project will be, um, the Pete, there's no one really, almost no one who's still alive. And so it's also different when you can talk to primary sources, talk to people who were there versus having to rely on other, you know, oral histories or written accounts. Um, and so I do love the interviewing, but I also have that, uh, that moment before you sit down and interview with like a little bit of how's it going to go? Is it going to flow? Is it, you know, are, are they yeah, Alex be- and I can't relate to that. Perfectly, everyone is just. (laughs) Well, yeah, right. Even talking to you all, it's like, are they going to ask me a question that I just can't answer? (laughs) No, that's not us. That's the other podcast. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You know, I I had a. um, It was kind of a last minute uh, NPR request for an interview the other day on on an article I wrote about International Women's Day, and so it wasn't a subject that I had spent you know two years you know researching it. I had just written this one article on it, and. and, you know, I thought it went really well, except there was one moment when I went to talk about my book, Power Hungry, that I forgot <laughs> the name of my book. And, like, <laughs> and it took me, I mean, it was probably like two seconds, but it felt like an eternity in my mind. Oh, God. <laughs> like, oh, God. I love it. The hardest question was, what is the name of your book? Um, I can, I can very much relate to that where you're just like, <laughs> uh, and I'm done. I'm done for the day. <laughs> Eat only when you're Lindsay. Eat only when you're Lindsay. Um, was there, I feel like as a, as oppressed people are often spoken for or spoken over, um, erased, you know, uh, I feel like there was such an enormous responsibility to write a book that told the story as they would tell it Mm. versus, versus a story that, you know, yeah. and I'm just wondering what, what is it like? What was it like carrying that kind of responsibility um, and and telling this this story that you know, as you say in your book, is has gone untold for far too long. You know that not enough people know about. How how did you check yourself? You know, like how did you make sure you were staying true to the story as as they would have told it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, from the um, beginning, I I thought of this as you know, definitely people asked me when I was asking people, if they would speak with me, you know, why are you, why are you telling this story? You know, why is this something you want to write about? And, you know, I remember (laughs) I was, so I came to writing about food. Um, and I hope y'all don't mind the long answer, but, um, I was, like I said, I had an MFA in 
uh, creative nonfiction. And so I'm writing these personal essays and I was getting into gardening and thinking a lot about, um, you know, my grandmother's one dead, one still alive at the time and still now. Um, and, you know, writing these stories about that and kind of, you know, mining my own life. And, you know, this is you know, more than a decade ago. And I remember looking for, you know, a new place to submit my next heartfelt essay about my grandmother. And um, I, I read something that said, you know, while we love our grandmother, you know, please don't send us any more essays about dead grandmas. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's going to come a point when I, I'm not just going to be mining my own life for stories. And the reason I went back and got my PhD is really because I love teaching and I wanted to be a, you know, a better teacher. And, um, and so that gave me the tools to, you know, think about, oh, how can I, how can I bring research into my, uh, into my narrative writing. And that's where I kind of found, I'm not a trained narrative journalist in any way. It's to me, it's just a, a mashup of, of academic research and narrative nonfiction writing. Um, and so I, I started thinking about different ways that I, um, you know, pitching stories and writing stories that were, you know, research-based, but not about myself. And that's where I also found uh, this field of food studies. And I was like, oh, this is really cool. I could kind of still be an academic, but write about these things that I find interesting. And um, especially because I was someone, you know, I now have a, a permanent job, but I was, you know, I was, I had a three-year gig here and a one-year gig there. And so I was trying to find the place that I would land, um, you know, career-wise. And so, and so that, yeah, that made me really think about um, my, you know, framing things from an academic perspective and, and having to have that research. And then the journalism part that was a little bit more self-taught, but also thinking about how I would want, you know, if I'm not telling my stories, why am I telling someone else's? It's because I, I have the privilege to do so. I'm, I'm in a place where, you know, I've been writing for a little bit, maybe someone would want to publish my stories. And if I'm going to talk, you know, if, if there is a story that I want to tell, because I am a writer and that's what I do, um, what are the stories that need to be told? What are the stories to amplify? And so when I, you know, whenever I explained to people who I asked if they would be willing to talk to me, it was all, always about amplifying stories that, um, you know, that, that I had hoped, that I asked if they wanted them to be amplified. And so it really was coming from that place. And when I spoke with um, Curtis Muhammad, that was such a pivotal talk. And I remember he said to me, he's like, before I tell you any stories, he goes, what are you, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm writing and I really want to, you know, tell these stories and, and I want to help amplify them. And, and it's not enough has been told. I have my whole spiel. And he said, I know he goes, but not, not everyone's going to read your book. Not everyone reads books. What are you doing? And so he also very much made me connect it to, you know, my own activism work and, and being explicit about that and being explicit about, um, about doing the work and not just the writing. And, and yes, you can think about your writing as your work, um, but it has to just be an extension of that. And so um, framing it in that way was really, was really helpful. And, um, and he, you know, he, it's why I'm just, you know, I'm so sad that I wasn't able to have further conversations with him because, you know, he was just someone who could really inspire action and did inspire action. And, um, and so I think about, you know, that is how I always frame these, these stories. I just had an event at MOFAD, um, you know, on the 15th of March and, um, and I was, the moderator for a conversation with some amazing activist women, including Cleo Silvers in the book. And, um, you know, kind of this book, I also, is, is in some ways, what my role was in that event was just to ask them questions that they answered and, um, you know, put their voice as, as forefront as possible and, and really see myself as, as the conduit for allowing their stories to be told.
Mm. Yeah. I like, I like thinking of it as, as being the conduit, mm-hmm. you know, just sort of making it to the page, making their words land on the page. Mm-hmm. Um, did Cleo or Curtis or Jacqueline get to read power hungry? Yeah. I, I don't know if Curtis ever did, but, um, both Jacqueline and Cleo, uh, and this was probably my, my greatest compliment. Um, Cleo, I was so nervous to send her a book and I didn't have a book. I didn't have hard copies. I never got um, ARCs. I only got digital ARCs. There were hard copies out in the world, but I just didn't get any. Um, and, um, and when I finally got a hard, a real, uh, you know, a finished book and I sent it to her and I was like, when am I going to hear back? And then she wrote me back. No, she left me a, a voicemail and she said, Suzanne, you told my story good. <laughs> and I was like, I did it. And then Jacqueline too, when I sent her the book, um, she, she wrote me right back an email and she said that she was really pleased. And those, those were just the best compliments for sure. So I had done my job. Will you tell Cleo, I said, hi, <laughs> I, I will for sure. Yeah. <laughs> she comes through so vibrantly and, yeah, she does. um, like really just inspiring on the page, you know, in the book and, um, and I'm, yeah, I'm really glad that you have that, that relationship with her. Thank you. She is so vibrant. (laughs) Suzanne, is there a link between Power Hungry and your current project that you're working on? Um, You know, there, yeah, there is. And I, I feel like this Power Hungry has um, emboldened me to move beyond just linking things to food. Um, You know, linking things to food is so powerful, but um, I don't, I don't want to say in any ways that it, that it stopped me from telling a larger story in Power Hungry. I think that it it helped me frame this large story as we've already noted in a, in a really um, great way and an important way and started conversations um, that, you know, I hope continue. Um, but this, you know, thinking about um, women's work and activist mothering, uh, that's a refrain that I was so helpful. Dr. Francois Hamlin uh, at Brown, she coined this term and, you know, I, I kept coming back to it. I found it early in my research and I kept coming back to it. I was like, this is such a great framework for thinking about the work that these women are doing and thinking about the work that so many um, women do that are that's long unsung. And, you know, just thinking, oh, we expect women to do this kind of quote unquote feminized work of feeding people and clothing people and bringing people together, maybe around a table and making sure they have, you know, get home safely or have a roof over their head. And this is so freaking important, right? And it's still work that so many women are doing and men, but, um, you know, I, I was collecting and I still hope to write the story, um, a, a shorter article, not a book, um, about so many activist women who are using these, these mothering skill sets, whether or not you have birthed any children or, or consider yourself a, a mother, you know, in the day-to-day life, you are this, you're using these mothering skills in really profound ways, um, to do uh, amazing work and necessary work. And so this other story, um, the next story is looking at um, anti-fascist women during World War II. And I was, in, I was, I was feeling really great about my research skills and my, and my historical skills. And so this is going to be, you know, not necessarily linked to food, but um, telling the story of, um, of four women uh, during this time period. And so they're not alive, but there are, um, they've written things and there's oral histories. And this summer, I hope to meet some of their family members. Um, but there's a term for that um, during World War II called la maternage. Um, and it's basically activist mothering where they, the women who 
were supporting, I mean, kind of using scare quotes here, um, the, the male fighters, but they were also doing all the fighting too, and they were supporting them. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is just echoing so um, poignantly with, you know, the, the story of, um, you know, the Black Freedom Movement, but of course with what so many, you know, activist mothers are doing today. So there's a definite link there. And the more I think about it, and the more I dig into this project, and I haven't started writing it, I'm just organizing it and researching it and working on the proposal, then, um, yeah, these it's, it's coming loud and clear. And I am working on an, um, a, an article for um, LA Review of Books as well that's going to help me make these links for readers on the page. That's awesome. I can't wait to read that. That sounds so cool. I know. I'm so excited to dig into it. <laughs> what a great idea. Well, Suzanne, I just want to thank you so much for coming on, especially since you're on vacation and talking to us about Power Hungry. <laughs> Definitely. Um, thank you. The book is insane. I, you know, there's so much in there that, you know, as we said, that we didn't know. And um, so I, you know, get out there and read it, everyone, because you need to know. Oh, thank you so much. It was really fun to come on and chat with y'all. How was your day? My day was okay. I forgot what we did today. My day was good. Um, I did some quality vacuuming. Mm -hmm. We went to the field museum. You guys always go to the field museum. I feel like no, usually we go to the museum of science and industry, Alex. Mm -hmm. Um, so we did that. And then I did a workout. Cool. Did some cleaning. I watched some of the St. Peter's game. Wah, wah. Yep. Um, and what else? What, then we had some spaghetti and some spaghetti, some garlic bread that I made. Nice. What about you? How was your day? I worked, okay. but after work, it was, it was good. I, I, I just sent you a, a short video hmm. and a photograph to show you what my day looked like when I came okay. home from work. Okay. So I feel like we should probably post this if we're going to, if we're going to keep this in the recording. Absolutely not. <laughs> No, we can just describe uh, it. It's a photo of me holding one of my daughters. We got Britain pajamas. We got the other daughter in the in the deep background, and then the other one is a video of hockey. watching hockey and making them dinner. <laughs> tell Britt she, like, Brit she has dumps like a truck. Oh yeah, I mean, come on. You think I would marry someone without them? <laughs> uh, no. Uh, yeah. So it was, it was great. I, I was thinking like, this is like my ideal day, like get to make dinner for the family. I can watch the hockey game at the same time, but like, oh. I'm still here yep. and it's just like, everybody's having fun. Brick gets to ride the bike. Brick gets to take a long shower, like be by herself. Cause she doesn't get a lot of alone time. Like, yep. That's it's, so awesome. It's, it's like, essential. this was a great day. Like she got like a whole, she got like an hour and a half to herself, which, and you know, honestly, it's probably like 45 minutes. I'm exaggerating. Cause I, I have no fucking idea how long it actually was, but like 45 <laughs> minutes is an hour and a half for mm -hmm. us. So, mm -hmm. I mean, you mm -hmm. know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? Sometimes five minutes alone is like all, yeah. all I need. Well, no, I, some of the best advice I ever got was from Ben's stepmom mm -hmm. way back in 2003 like a year into us dating when they offered me a job to work for the law firm that his dad has. Mm. 
because mm-hmm. I was before that I was working at Barnes and Noble. And what would happen is Ben would teach. He was teaching at the time. So he had like a day job mm-hmm. and I would have like a uh, closing shift, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh God. Okay. So he's going off on being a, that the fact that he was in the teacher's union. Okay. So he was like legit, a legit teacher. Okay. Anyway, you just tell Ben no one doubted him for even a second. Yeah, like, I know he's always arguing. Ben, whatever, whatever you want, bud shadow boxing in his head anyway <laughs> back to the actual point of this story um so i'd have like a closing shift show so he would like come mm-hmm. and we would go eat at like baja burrito for dinner and that's how we would see each other and then sure. you know like he'd be asleep when i came home mm-hmm. and she was just like his stepmom was like you have to be on the same schedule like it's just important to be on the same schedule yeah. and i had never oh, thought man. of that before and it like we've never looked back we've just it's so really great. great advice. It's great advice that I'm not taking at all in my <laughs> life, but I mean, like not but even sometimes, sometimes. No, 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 no. I mean, we literally hand off childcare. I know that's so hard. No, that is so no. hard. It is. And because, you know, there's that, there's that thing too, like when you actually spend time together where you're like, Oh my God, like, like we do. <laughs> Like, this is good. Like, yeah. we get along. We get along. We love each other. This is easy. It's easy when we're together and we can both parent at the same time. Yep. That's the way That's the way it should be. Yeah. Yeah. So it was nice to have a bunch. I, yeah. It was nice to have some more time together today on the weekend for sure. Because you didn't have to go in on Friday, right? I didn't. I didn't have to go in on Friday. And then um, today too or something? No. Why was worked- today better? I mean, I don't know. I, I worked, I worked four forty-five to two forty-five today. God. So, um, which is whatever. But I mean, you know, two forty-five. I get home at, you know, three fifteen-ish, mm-hmm. and so we still had a, a few hours, you know, where she could go do her stuff, and I can make dinner and goof around. So it was, it was good. I mean, yeah. That's nice. Whatever. I think a lot of people will understand. Like a yes. lot of people listening will relate to this, where it's just like, you know, when you're not with your partner, when you don't overlap with your partner, whether or not you have kids, I think that's I think the kids makes it tougher, but like it definitely is not it's not only for people with kids. Um, it's just it's tough to kind of get on the same page sometimes. And it's yeah, it's not absolutely. it's not it's not anybody's fault. I think it's just because when you don't have time where you're just with each other, it's, it's so hard sometimes. Yeah. That reminds me that in Ben's first year of law school, that was probably like the darkest period of our relationship because Mm. he would work full time. And then um, from there he would go to his classes and he would get home at like 10, 10 30. And then all weekend he'd have to study because he didn't have time to study during the week. And we just like, didn't, see each other or talk course, to each other yeah. and you mm-hmm. like you just like of course those things start to drop away you know right um and then like then thankfully things changed and we were you know back together and then you were not that we broke up but that we were back on the same relative schedule and mm-hmm. and it it was so much easier it was like oh yeah i really like you <laughs> i know it sounds it sounds so You're not silly just my to say it out roommate. loud Right. But it's like, it's really so true. It's like, it's, it's easy to actually forget like, oh yeah, all we need to do is like just spend more time together. Yeah. It's so true. It's so true. I know it's hard. It's hard. Um, What was I going to tell you? What I feel like I've been reading lots of good stuff. 
but I don't remember. What have, what have you been reading? What have you been doing? Um, can oh god, honey, I don't know. He just cracked himself up about something, and I don't want to know. Um, okay, I started reading Jessamine Chan's book, The awesome. School for Good Mothers. Our the local School buddy. Yeah, local Chicago. I'm so happy she's here now. It was so Holy funny shit, when we book. were exchanging emails with her, and like neither of us realized that she just like lived in Illinois, like right by us. She could just come in my basement and <laughs> record this next episode. She's going to be on next week. I wonder, and... if she's, I wonder if she's closer to me or you. She might be like splitting the difference in a way. Yeah, I don't know. We'll have to ask her. Just no, we'll just, what's your we'll address? Just, we'll just map quest it like it's 2004. Yeah, there you go. Um, this book is darker than I thought in a great way. It is Ooh, like it awesome. goes there. It is. It's like a cross between The Good Mother by Sue Miller, which I absolutely love. I think it's called mm-hmm. The Good Mother. I'm doubting myself. But, you know, that Sue Miller book. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Handmaid's Tale, Ooh. which um, I know, you know, people have opinions on her, on, on Margaret Atwood, but that's one of my favorite books um sue i'm gonna gonna make sure yeah the good mother by sue miller and um it is so good it is so fun to read awesome i'm starting it tomorrow so i'm excited i feel like i'm taking notes on every page of things i want to talk to her about she's yeah it's great i can't wait to talk to her. that's awesome cool um and i have another movie wreck oh god was it on hulu of course it is honey was it on hulu beta test or fresh we already talked about fresh beta test Okay, guys, it's it was on Hulu. Yeah. <laughs> and goes, fuck yeah, it was on Hulu. Okay, we love this filmmaker Jim Cummings, and he, um, oh, no. his last movie was called The Wolf of Sleepy Hollow, and it it's like a horror comedy. And the one before okay. that is called Thunder Road, and that's more like a family dramedy type thing. Okay. Um, this one is like, uh, I don't know. I was gonna say satire, but I don't like satire, and I liked this. But it's kind of about like being a creator in Hollywood and also how um, technology is ruining everything. So it's like, it's, there's like really fucked up parts, really hilarious parts. Um, And in every Jim Cummings vehicle, there's a moment where Jim Cummings, who's also usually the star of his movie, goes on a rant and the rant lasts forever. Hmm. And it is exquisite. It is so much fun (laughs) to watch. Um, And he has a really good one in in this movie called the beta test did i already say I the name of it recognize this guy it looks like he's done a lot of stuff yeah he's all over the place um huh. i think he like acts in other people's movies and like serves as producer and stuff like that on other stuff but his main his movies are thunder road wolf of sleepy hollow and the beta test what is it i'm sorry the wolf of snow hollow my band sorry ben i'm i'm looking at his imdb and i I have this thing where if I don't know where somebody's from, it bothers me. Like if I'm reading a biography and they don't tell me where they're from, I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I'm like what are you hiding? Like, where are you from? Just tell me where you're from. Yeah, I hear you. Well, maybe so, they're from Orlando and they don't want you to know. <laughs> well, you're from Orlando and you tell me all the fucking time. Yeah, because I'm proud. Some people aren't. Yeah, I love that about you. <laughs> uh, what else? What else? What else? Mm. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I think that's it. I think we did it. I think we did it. Yeah. Uh, great work. And talk to you in a week. In a week, maybe we can both talk about our thing. May. Yeah. Maybe. <gasps> okay. Maybe. All right. Okay. Bye. <laughs> Bye.
I'm a Writer But is recorded by Alex Hickley and me, Lindsay Hunter, in our respective basements. Editing by Lindsay Hunter. Music by Max Loop. Yeah, yeah.